Hi everyone, Jason here. On May the 14th, Stephen and myself will be appearing with the one and only Mark Lewison at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary, Dublin. We're going to be celebrating 60 years of a hard day's night and we would love you to join us. For tickets, go to paviliontheatre.ie or nothingisrealpod.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi everyone, Jason here. Stephen here. And we just wanted to pop in to tell you that we are doing some live shows, which you might have heard about already. We are doing Belfast in the Black Box on October the 23rd, Dublin in the Sugar Club on November the 9th, and in London at the Phoenix Artists Club on November the 15th. So be there or be square. That's what the kids say, isn't it? I think it's what the kids say. We've got tickets available for the Dublin and Belfast shows. London has just sold out, but we are, if we get any returns, we will let you all know on our socials. If you go to nothingisrealpod.com, there are links to everywhere you can get your tickets. We're going to be talking about the Beatles and the Beatles playing live and a couple of other bits and pieces, and we'll be taking Q&As and talking to everybody. And uh, so it'll be like a podcast, but in 3D and in person. This is the big thing in uh, 2023 is podcasts. In real life. So, yeah, go to nothingisrealpod.com for tickets and information. Our London show has sold out, but hopefully, if we get some more released, we'll let you know as soon as possible. So, nothingisrealpod.com for tickets to see Nothing Is Real live, Belfast, Dublin, and London. See you there. Welcome to Nothing Is Real, a podcast about the Beatles. Everybody thinks they know the Beatles, but how much do we really know? My name is Jason Carty. My name is Stephen Cockcroft. And we are live on tape from Dublin and Belfast. The story so far, those plucky Beatles have given interviews in March 1966 to Maureen Cleave, where one of them points out that they might be slightly, not popular, but, you know, Christianity. They're bigger than Christianity. That's kind of roughly the, the, the vibe of it. These get spiralled out of control once they hit the US newsstands at the end of July 1966 and it's the Tommy Charles, the DJ for WAQY Radio, who decides to put it on air as a stunt and it gets spread through the United Press International by a guy called Al Ben. And this is the thing that kicks it all off and it's a bit of a contagion after that. It's one radio station after another. One radio station after another. So several dozen stations followed Wackies, lead, uh, band the Beatles music, Reno, KCBN broadcast an anti-Beatle editorial every hour on the hour. Other stations smashed Beatles records live on air. Charles and Leighton then urged their listeners to send their Beatles records to the station so that they could destroy them with an industrial-grade tree-grinding machine, such as only to be found in Alabama. (laughs) Uh, Yes, and after going through the Beetle Grinder, borrowed from Birmingham City Council, all that'll be left of the records will be fine dust. A box full of the dust will be presented to the British pop stars when they arrive in Memphis, Tennessee, not far from here, for a concert on August the 19th, so says the Daily Gleaner in Alabama. Um, Yeah, and the Ku Klux Klan get involved. South Carolina's Grand Dragon of the Klan nailed Beatles albums to a cross and set it aflame at a Beatle bonfire in Chester. It's 
good to have a hobby, I suppose. My favourite response <laughs> is from the excellently named Pastor Thurmond Babs of Cleveland, Ohio, who threatened to excommunicate any member of his congregation who dared attend a Beatles concert. And KZEE in Weatherford, Texas, quote, damned their songs eternally. It's all kicking off. It's all kicking off. The Beatles took the view that they have to buy them to burn them, so what? Which is kind of a, a Ruttles nod. <laughs> it is. Uh, they were buying their records just to burn them. Sales soared. Um, and, you know, we, we can laugh at this now from 2023 eyes, because who would want to be banning books and taking them out of schools and telling it's people what to read and what to listen to? Ho, ho, ho. That crazy talk. these days, thank goodness. Crazy talk. You know, it's almost like somebody wanted to um, ban and burn uh, disco records because they're morons. Uh, and so it goes. And so it goes. If it was the 1st of August, 1966, and you were a Beatles fan in the US of A, um, you would have been listening to their latest waxing. Yesterday and today. An album that never came out, obviously for, for obvious reasons, in, in the UK. Um, but if yesterday and today is remembered for anything, today, it is uh, The Butcher's Sleeve. Yes, this is one of those compilations that Capital put together using bits and pieces from other albums. And uh, significantly in the context of what we talked about on 16 Songs of 1966 on our ACAST Plus bonus episodes last time. Early mixes of some of the Revolver tracks end up here. So the cover is what the record is probably most remembered for. And this was all happening about six or seven weeks earlier. This record was released. It had a cover which was deemed to be offensive or inappropriate. Capital had to recall them. And there's quite a backstory to that cover and its origins and how, how we got there. But it, it sets a lot of the context where the Beatles are in uh, August 1966. Yeah, now Robert Whittaker is the photographer and he had this notion that he wanted to create a conceptual art piece called a somnambulant adventure as a comment on the Beatles' fame because he had uh, been with them on their August 1965 US tour. And yeah, he'd watched people, he said, I'd, all over the world, I'd watched people worshipping them like idols, like gods, the four Beatles. To me, they were just stock standard normal people. But the emotion that the fans poured in them made me wonder where Christianity was heading. Uh-oh. <laughs> That's a bit of foreshadowing right there. It, it does just echo John's comments. And this all predates this. You know, this is his idea coming out of August 1965 that tour he's come up with this so he holds a photo session and again Whitaker is someone like Maureen Cleave they're very friendly with him they're familiar with him he's worked on previous albums and they are comfortable so when they turn up at his studio at One the Vale Chelsea and he gives them bits of dolls trays of meat butcher's coats hammer and nails a bird cage cardboard boxes false teeth and glass eyes they <laughs> they just go with it yeah, Whitaker says, you know, I wanted to do a real experiment. People will jump to the wrong conclusions about it being sick, but the whole thing is based on simplicity, linking four very real people with something real. I got George to knock some nails into John's head, and I took some sausages along to get some other pictures. I dressed them up in white smocks as butchers, and this is the result. The use of the camera as a means of creating situations. And, you know, John 
you know, also talks about it. We took the pictures in London at one of those photo sessions. By then, we were really beginning to hate it. Photo sessions were a real ordeal. We had to try and look normal and didn't feel like it. The photographer was a bit of a surrealist. And he brought along all these babies, pieces of meat, doctor's coats. We really got into it. That's just how we felt, you know? To which Whitaker adds, the meat is meant to represent the fans and the false teeth and the false eyes, the falseness of representing a godlike image as a golden calf. And this apparently was supposed to be a triptych, isn't that right? Again, it's sort of Christian iconography and that sort of slightly Russian look to, to icons. So the butcher photograph itself was to appear in the central portion uh, on the back cover of an album. He planned to reduce the image to a two and a quarter inches square and then set it in a bejeweled panel. So again, it's a very almost like a Russian religious icon, uh, silver and gold. The front cover was going to be uh, the Beatles holding two strings of sausages, symbolizing umbilical cords that appeared to connect to the belly of a woman whose back was to the camera, which would be set inside another image showing the woman's womb, thereby representing the Beatles' birth and emphasizing their human qualities. It all seems very logical to me. The third part was a photograph of George hammering nails into John's head, suggest, suggesting trepanation. Mm. Uh, and apparently in a state of transcendence, Lennon's face would be rendered as a wood grain and a horizon would be added in which ocean and sky were reversed. Lovely. Yeah. Suggesting trepanation because he's actually doing it. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, yeah. If anybody would like to Photoshop this for us, because there isn't, nobody seems to have turned this into a thing online. Um, if somebody would like to follow uh, Roger Whitaker's original instructions, he, uh, yeah, he might have had a few. Um, it'd be nice to Photoshop it and see what a crazy mid nineteen sixty six album cover triptych based on religious Russian religious orthodoxy visuals could have been. It is, or or we could uh, we could uh, for our website we could uh, recreate the photo session. Mm. <laughs> now there's an idea. Um, yeah, what kind of comes out of this is the cover image for yesterday and today, what we call the butcher photo. And I'm sure everybody listening here has seen the butcher image. Certainly as a kid, when I saw it for the first time, it freaked me out. Um, I read, saw it in a book in the late 80s. It's very strange. It is very strange. I have to say, I never found it particularly shocking. I think I was maybe older than, than you when you first saw it, but I, it turns up in the Beatles Rarities album, the US mm-hmm. version, and the inner sleeve has a full 12 by 12 photograph. I just thought it was, because I'd seen the other outtakes from the session with George hammering nails into George John's head, uh, the birdcage, that type of thing. Um, yeah, it just seemed a bit strange, but it didn't, didn't, didn't freak me out. And it's, it's a stepping stone on the, you know, the Beatles trying to get control over how their albums are released in the US, because the Beatles themselves want the butcher image on the cover and uh, there's notions where Paul said after the fact oh it's our comment on Vietnam or is it to do with Capital butchering their albums but Capital were putting out these albums without their say so and now here they are saying well this must be the cover of this album if you're going to release it this way. Yeah and Capital president uh, Alan Livingstone he absolutely dead against this. Brian Epstein said the Beatles were adamant and it had to be used so in a 2002 article in Mojo Alan Livingston said that his principal contact was with Paul, who pushed strongly for the album cover and described it as our comment on the Vietnam War. I always took that quite cynically that 
that was a sort of rewriting or an after the fact. Mm. But but they were actually making that comment at the time, according uh, to to Livingstone. So Paul in the anthology book says it was Capitol Records that didn't want it. But you have to remember the climate then. I remember Sir Edward Lewis, head of DECA, not wanting the Stones album cover because it had graffiti on a toilet seat. That was Beggar's Banquet. Mick came around to talk to us mm. about it. And I actually rang up Sir Edward and said that I thought they should put it out, but he wasn't having any of it. We weren't against the little shock now and then, now and then. It was part of our makeup. Um, yeah, so Capital, uh, basically because the Beatles were pushing for it, they wanted this to be the cover. And Capital's art director quite liked the image and wanted to try and present it like a, a painting with a, a canvas effect. Um, but in the end, they prepare 750,000 copies of Yesterday and Today with the Butcher cover, and it's due to come out on the 15th of June, 1966. And they send out an initial 60,000 copies for media purposes and radio purposes, and pretty much straight away, everyone goes, yuck. Yeah, the reaction seems to have been almost immediate. Disc jockeys didn't like it. Retailers said they weren't going to stock it. Uh, so there's clearly pushback right from the start. Uh, Livingston contacts Epstein, who reluctantly agrees to replace the cover with a rather anodyne shot of the Beatles posing around a trunk, a sort of large travelling trunk. And on the 10th of June, which is only five days before the scheduled release, Capital Launch, uh, this is a brilliant code name, you'd never know what they were at, Operation <laughs> Retrieve, to Ooh, recall wow. all copies of the LP from distributors to then replace the offending image, uh, all the promotional posters, all of this stuff has been done based on the Butcher's cover and it all has to be recalled. Yes, and it's covered in Billboard magazine where they talk about uh, salesmen at the various couple of releases distributing uh, branches are recuperating from a busy weekend yesterday spent stripping the latest Beatles album yesterday and today. Um, some 750,000 albums which were pressed, packaged and shipped to the factory branches have been recalled for repackaging. Reason is the cover art which shows the Beatles in white smocks surrounded by what appears to be dismembered and baby dolls and butcher shop cuts of meat. Um, it goes on to say, you know, uh, that Livingstone had said the original cover in England was intended as a pop art satire. However, a sampling of public opinion in the United States indicates that the cover design is open for interpretation. Um, and what they are doing is they are destroying some covers, but they are also just sticking over onto the butcher covers um, a, a um, you know, the, the trunk picture. And so this leads to the current collector's situation where people have slowly and meticulously peeled the, yes. um, the, the trunk cover off copies of yesterday and today uh, in order to try and get to the butcher cover underneath. Yes. So you've got, now you've got first state, second state, third state, whether the cover is intact, whether it's been peeled, whether it's been partially peeled. And it's become hugely collectible. because you've got to, got to sort of put all of this in context. The total cost of, of doing this was $250,000, which is the equivalent to $2.25 million in 2023. So this wiped out the company's initial profit. This was no small deal. And the controversy really marked the first time that I suppose the public, the record buying public, the radio stations had questioned the Beatles' judgment. I guess the reason why we're kind of filling in the gaps on this story is that uh, this is the, the, the kind of the previous big piece of Beatles news before we get to the 
bigger than Jesus controversy. So this whole album Farago has happened in mid to late June with this shocking picture. So there's kind of a foundation set that the Beatles are, you know, going off the rails, degenerate, bad influence. They've gone weird. They're upsetting. And so I, I think this kind of sets up six weeks later when, when Bigger Than Jesus drops. It's in the background of this album, this image, this this kind of thing that they are somehow being provocative or somehow being kind of ugly in a way. Yes, Carol A. Beat uh, did a review and said uh, they criticised the Beatles for supplying, quote, the most nauseating album cover ever seen in the US, saying that it appeared to be designed for shock value. And I like this phrase from the review. It said, but those wise in the ways of the entertainment business have stuck to the same thought throughout the Beatles' reign. No one can kill the Beatles except themselves, and perhaps they're doing it now. So there is this sense that the Beatles are being controversial for the sake of being controversial. With hindsight, George Harrison would say in Anthology, sometimes we all did stupid things, thinking it was cool and hip when it was naive and dumb, and that, the cover, was one of them. So mm. there, is a, there is a division here at the time. George Martin recalls that the cover is, was the cause of his first strong disagreement with the band. He said, I thought it was disgusting and in poor taste. It suggested that they were madmen, which they were, but not in that way. So there, there's a line between George Martin on the one hand, representing the sort of older generation, I suppose, and the Beatles with this cover. And it, it creates a division, I think, in their own camp. Yes, it does. And, and it's fueled by the same thing that fuels the Maureen Cleave interview, which is that nobody is saying no to them. Nobody is filtering them. Nobody is trying to say, um, you know, no, nobody's playing the role of the audience to say, this might not be a, a thing you might want to, to put out there. Um, but we kind of go back now to the whole bigger than Jesus issue. And this is, you know, the last big thing for me. So yesterday and today is still a big hit album and it's you know, got singles on it. And there's only about, you know, we still have Revolver about to come out. So there's only about 10 or 12, 10 weeks or so between yesterday and today and the Revolver coming out in in the US, which is an 11-track version of Revolver. But this is all on the verge of their tour. And the US tour is going to run, US and Canada, is going to run from the 12th of August to the 29th of August. And when this Bigger Than Jesus controversy kicks off at the start of August... Brian is off the radar a bit. Brian isn't well. So Mm. the background to this is the whole Philippines debacle where there are sort of death threats and uh, we'll talk about that on on another occasion. But Brian has taken ill at this point. He is unwell even on the way home from the Philippines. He has gone to stay in Port Marion, charming village known as the setting for the prisoner. And Supergrass's All Right video. Two big cultural uh, moments. So Brian is convalescing, uh, shall we say, and is, as you say, out of circulation. He's obviously aware of the controversy around the, the butcher cover. He is aware of the controversy that's brewing about the comments printed in Datebook. But he doesn't really seem to be taking it that seriously. And there's, there's a real sense that no one in the Beatles camp is taking it seriously until a combination of people, Nat Weiss, 
Sid Bernstein, uh, Walter Hoffer, who was Brian's U.S. entertainment lawyer, get in touch with Brian to say, this is getting out of hand. You are going to have to come to America and deal with this issue because there's a real danger that promoters will start to cancel shows. And it's only because of this intervention um, by his representatives in America that Brian realizes I'm going to have to get up off my sickbed, go to America and sort this out. He'd originally suggested that John should go into the studio with George Martin and record a statement. Maybe something, you know, we'd get Derek Taylor in uh, to do that. Derek's still in California at this stage. John refused to do that. That would have been a fascinating thing to hear. Mm-hmm. There's an interesting balance that kicks out over the next couple of weeks, which is the realisation that some sort of apology or acknowledgement has to be made versus the fact that John doesn't necessarily roll over and capitulate and say, yeah, I'll do whatever it takes. You know, I'll, I'll go out and do the, the you know, hands up mea culpa. It, nowadays, there's a whole industry yeah. attached to the, um, you know, celebrity who's made a mistake and, you know, the, the how to rehabilitate them and how to put them back together. Um, but there's this merry dance going on where they they understand as as August 66 progresses, the Beatles understand that, yeah, it's a bit of a serious error and something has to be done. But they, they don't come out and straightway fall on their sword and do whatever it takes to right the wrong or correct themselves or, or say that they're um, say that they were out of line. And, and that's something to keep in the back of mind as we kind of walk through the, the tour. Art Unger, who put it out in Datebook originally, said, John Lennon had a perfect right to make his statements just as others have a perfect right to disagree with him. Our teenagers show a lot more maturity than many adults give them credit for and they are quite capable of reading what John has to say, weighing the points he has to make and then deciding for themselves where they stand. And in many years from now, Paul says, I must admit, we didn't really take it too seriously at all. We just thought, yeah, well, you can see what it is. It's hysterical, low-grade American thinking. So they have a perspective before they go to the States in person that this is... They think it's a nothing event. It's just the Americans overreacting. The context for them is Maureen Cleave is a friend. The interviews have appeared in England. It's well behind them. We've talked before about how fast things move in the Beatles' lives. By this stage, these interviews will have been forgotten. Uh, they, they came out months ago in, in, the, the, in the UK. Brian does, however, then realise this potential cost of of the controversy. He flies to New York and he gives a press conference on the 5th of August at the Americana Hotel in New York. This was the day Revolver comes out in the UK. The New York Times carries a front page lead on the story and carries a quote from Maureen Cleave saying, John was certainly not comparing the Beatles to Christ. He was simply observing that. So weak was the state of Christianity. The Beatles were, to many people, better known. He was deploring rather than approving this. He said things had reached a ridiculous state of affairs when human beings could be worshipped in this extraordinary way. Brian does not regard this intervention as helpful. And he contacts (laughs) his assistant back in London and says, tell Maureen Cleave not to make any more comments, tell the Beatles to stop talking to the press, uh, as if things weren't bad enough. An interview that Paul had done with David Frost had just been previewed, in which he said, Americans seem to believe that money is everything. So just as they are about to embark on their American tour, more of these comments are coming out. Coincidentally, it was also the day 
that the death of Lenny Bruce, no stranger to controversy himself, was announced. Yeah, so Brian is kind of finally cracking the whip to say, shut them up. And uh, Brian is on his own at uh, the Americana Hotel and he makes a statement which is prepared and the statement is, the quote which John Lennon made to a London columnist more than three months ago has been quoted and misrepresented entirely out of context. What he said and meant was that he was astonished that in the last 50 years the Church of England and therefore Christ had suffered a decline in interest. He did not mean to boast about the Beatles' fame. He meant to point out that the Beatles' effect appeared to be to him a more immediate one upon certain of the younger generation. And Brian went on to say that, um, you know, he'd cancel any shows if anybody wanted to cancel shows. But, you know, Paul might have had a point where people think money is everything. No shows get cancelled. No shows get cancelled. The promoters all want to go ahead. So the key defence here is we were quoted out of context. John was quoted out of context. And he goes on to say specifically the article, which in depth was highly complimentary to Lennon as a person was understood by him and myself to be exclusive to the evening standard. It was not anticipated that it would be displayed out of context and in such a manner as it was in an American teen magazine. But of course... It was Tony Barrow within Brian's organisation who had actually suggested to Art Unger that it would be perfect for Datebook. And the background to that is Unger had actually got in touch then at Barrow's suggestion with Maureen Cleave on the 10th of March. So very early on, began negotiations. And on the 4th of April, Unger confirms to Barrow, we've done a deal with Maureen Cleave. We're going to put these out. And he actually offered to let Tony Barrow see the article before it went out and Barrow declined. So the out of context and the we understood this to be exclusive to the London Evening Standard, clearly not correct. Art Unger is present at the press conference and he stands up to defend himself. And he said he didn't want to get Tony Barrow in trouble, but he simply says it's not out of context. All the quotes are there. There was an exchange with Brian before the conference moved on, and it seems inconceivable that they hadn't discussed this before Brian got up to make the statement. But Brian is clearly using the art of context, pointing the finger at Datebook, and Unger and Unger's having none of it. All of this makes uh, the next copy of Billboard magazine, the copy dated August the 13th, 1966. It's covered on the... Uh, on, not not exactly on the front page, but inside on page four. Uh, and what they start to notice, looking at it from a business point of view, uh, is the, you know, the, the radio ban against playing Beatles records, which was begun last week by Tommy Charles and Doug Layton in WAQI, Birmingham, Alabama, has spread across the country with dozens of stations refusing to programme the British group. And it talks about the controversy of the statement. And it says, you know, at a press conference held here last Friday, the 5th, Brian Epstein, the Beatles manager, said the statement was taken out of context. Context um, goes on to say the greatest impact has been in the so-called Bible Belt, using inverted commas, which is mainly in the southeast. But the ban is extended to other sections of the country. New York's WABC has reportedly put the Beatles records on the verboten list. But at press time, the switchboard operator at the station said it was not one of the station's staff members who could be reached. So this is the first wave. Um, this is the press conference that Brian gives on the fifth. The tour is due to start on the. 12th in Chicago. So let's get to the tour uh, because, you know, the Beatles aren't going to take a break, but maybe we will. And then we'll talk about it after that. End of part one. Intermission. 
one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. End of intermission. Part two. Welcome back. So the Beatles tour is due to start on uh, August the 12th, 66 in Chicago. And on August the 11th, they set off. So they are literally going into the eye of the storm. There's 600 fans to meet them at the airport. Is that a lot? Probably not as much as 64. No, 600 is more than 64. (laughs) No, I meant the year 64, Stephen. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, 600 fans doesn't seem a lot. Um, yes, and <laughs> yeah. So, but the first thing about this is they're due to start the tour on the twelfth, so they leave London on the eleventh. That's crazy as well. <laughs> Why are they leaving it's... one day before they're due to? You know, jet lag is that not a thing? Uh, <laughs> mad anyway. As you say, they're they're flying into the storm. Cynthia comments on this in her book, A Twist of Lennon. She was married to Mister Twist at the time. She should have called it twist and shite, I suppose. But anyway, Cynthia says, his views were totally misconstrued. John was very bewildered and frightened by the reaction that his words created in the States. Beatle albums were burnt in a mass orgy of self-righteous indignation. Letters arrived at the house full of threats, hate and venom. And Ringo says in Anthology, John had to apologise, not because of what he'd said, but to save our lives, because there were a lot of very heavy threats, not only to him, but to the whole band. Yes, John is actually, for all his um, outspokenness, is quite upset and uptight at the start of this. That's, you know, Paul recounts that John was nervous. Uh, John subsequently gave an interview saying, you know, I didn't want to talk because I thought they'd kill me because they take things so seriously in the US. I mean, they shoot you and then they realise it wasn't that important. So I didn't want to go, but Brian and Paul and the other Beatles persuaded me to come. I was scared stiff. And Tony Barrow said, John put his head in his hands and sobbed. He was saying, I'll do anything, whatever you say. How am I to face the others if this whole tour is called off because of something I said? So they have a press conference in the 27th floor suite of the Astor Tower. Uh, It's not there anymore. And um, there's 30 members of the press there. And this is the first time that the Beatles have appeared to speak openly in public about this thing. And how does it go? It goes, well, it goes. (laughs) It sure does. This is very famous uh, footage and uh, it was colorized for eight days a week and you you can watch it there. 
But lots of quotes from Lenin that come out of this are, are still being paraded around today. So John says, we could have just sort of hidden in England and said, we're not going, we're not going. You know, that occurred to me when I heard it all. I couldn't remember saying it. I couldn't remember the article. I was panicking, saying, I'm not going at all, you know, but if they sort of straighten it out, it will be worth it and good. When it came out in England, it was a bit of a blab mouth saying anyway. A few people wrote into the papers and a few wrote back saying, so what? He said that. Who is he anyway? Or they said, so he can have his own opinion. And then it just vanished. It was very small. But, you know, when it gets over here and then it's put into a kid's magazine and just parts of it or whatever was put in, it just loses its meaning or its context immediately. And everybody starts making their own versions of it. So this is not a strong start to the, you know, he's sort of (laughs) all over the place in this statement. This is not a carefully scripted statement. He is admitting he thought initially, I'm not going to go to America. And then he refers to it as being a kid's magazine. They're still honing in on this out of context defense. Yeah, definitely. Like in modern day, um, you know, defense management, you can see the, uh, you know, the famous person coming out to a microphone saying, I've got a few words I'd like to say. And instead, you know, the top notch plan is to let the freewheeling brain of John Lennon go out and, and make it right. And yeah, th- th- this is a famous kind of press conference. So, you know, John uh, has the, the famous quotes of, I'm not anti-God or anti-Christ or anti-religion. I was not knocking it. I was not saying we're better or greater or comparing us with Jesus Christ as a person or God as a thing or whatever it is. I happened to be talking to a friend and I used the word Beatles as a remote thing. Beatles, like other people see us. I said, they're having more influence on kids and things than anything else, including Jesus. I said it in that way, which was the wrong way. And then he goes on to say, well, originally I was pointed out the fact in reference to England that we meant more to kids than Jesus did or religion at the time. I wasn't knocking it or putting it down. I just said what I said and it was wrong or it was taken wrong. And now it's all this. The classic, and now it's all this. (laughs) Um, But thankfully the other Beatles are there to back him up and uh, they do a great job too. They do a great job too. So Paul says... And this is the point, you know, this is why we're getting in all these messes with saying things, because, you know, we're just trying to move forward and people seem to be trying to just sort of hold us back and not wanting us to say anything that's vaguely sort of, you know, inflammatory. I think it's better for everyone if we're just honest about the whole thing. Yeah, my favourite is is George, who says, you know, in the context that it was meant, and it was the fact that Christianity is declining and everybody knows that, and that was the fact that we were trying to make. I agree that it's on the wane. No, George, stop talking. Don't double down. <laughs> well done. Well done, George. Ringo, in the vain hope, he says, well, I hope it's just all over now. You know, I hope everyone's straightened out and it's finished. Yeah, good old Ringo. Can we all go home? Can we all just be friends? Um, John's pushed to apologise and he does a classic sort of um, you know, circular apology. I wasn't saying what they were saying. I was saying, I'm sorry I said it, really. I never meant it to be a lousy anti-religious thing. I apologise if that'll make you happy. I still don't know what I've done. I've tried to tell you what I did do. But if you want me to apologise, if that'll make you happy, then OK, I'm sorry. A classic Hooray. version of the I'm sorry if you've took it that way type apology. Like, this isn't the only press conference that they do. There's more press conferences on the tour. Yes, so they do a press conference the next day, which is essentially for DJs and press. And John refers specifically to the book, The Passover Plot. 
And in that context, he says, I believe in God, but not as one thing, not as an old man in the sky. I believe what people call God is something in all of us. I believe that Jesus, Muhammad, Buddha, and all the rest were right. It's just the translators have got it wrong. And I think the most interesting thing is that statement in the middle. I believe what people call God is something in all of us. This is 12 months before the Maharishi arrives on the scene and John has already sort of got to this point in terms of his reading and his trying to work through things. And again, you know, we talked about the Maharishi and we did that sort of whole thing on India and all the rest. But John is indicating here clearly in his statements, he's he's open to that. He is he is ready to receive the message that the Maharishi is is bringing or will bring. But that's the end of it. Yeah, well, uh, <laughs> well, as we said in the first part, there was, you know, the, there, there were people in the Church of England who were saying the same thing. There's a, we mentioned this book, Honest to God, by the Bishop of Woolwich, which talked about, you know, God being in each one of us, being a universal ethic of love, very much a Maharishi message, you know, trying to get away from God as a, a, a big man in the sky, which is probably where he got that idea from. And everybody says it's okay. The New York Times editorial, great paper, um, said that the matter was over. Okay. Um L'Osservatore uh, Romano, obviously I'm not a subscriber, the Vatican's daily newspaper says that the apology is fine, um, that's okay, and the Beatle bonfire gets cancelled. Yes, wacky DJs Charles and Leighton cancelled the Beatles bonfire, which had been due on the 19th, um, although they didn't actually say that it was because they accepted the apology, it was because they couldn't get the licence, they couldn't get a permit to uh, have a bonfire. No issue with that in Northern Ireland, obviously. (laughs) A public burning organised by radio station Clue did take place on August the 13th uh, in Texas. So there were still some uh, record burnings. But uh, in a sign of God's displeasure at the whole sorry event, uh, the station's transmission tower was struck by lightning the next day. So God (laughs) is on the Beatles' side. And that was the end of it. And they all lived happily ever after. Yeah, that's the end of the story. We're available in all the usual places. No, 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 no. Wait a second. Wait a second. There's more to this that, that happened. Um, you know, if, if you're following the story, you know, money is the bottom line. In the following week's Billboard magazine, um, you know, the question of whether the Beatles were going to be removed from playlists is thoroughly debunked by the fact that they've decided to put out a brand new single called Yellow Submarine. And uh, the following week, it's reported in Billboard, the Beatles, in spite of the controversy, are being played on major Hot 100 format radio stations around the nation and their latest record, Yellow Submarine, hit the Billboard chart this week at number 52, an indication of not only vast radio exposure, but a deluge of sales. And the radio stations playing the Beatles were market powerhouses such as KIMN in Denver, KLIF in Dallas, KDWB in Minneapolis, WFUN in Miami, WDKO in Louisville. It goes on and on and on. So this is two weeks after the the wacky W-A-Q-Y, let's ban the Beatles. And the Beatles are like, yeah, okay, here's a new single and every radio station plays it. So if you're trying to print the myth, the bigger than Jesus myth of that, you know, there was a, a downturn in certain aspects of their popularity. Well, up against a brand new Beatles single, all the radio stations are, are going to play it. There's no, there's no knocking them on that front. It's ironic, don't you think, that in the context of all of this, the Beatles released their least satanic least demonic single in Yellow Submarine with uh, Ringo 
singing the lead vocal. And on the other side, Eleanor Rigby, which is all about churches and lonely people. And it's, you couldn't have timed, you couldn't have chosen a better single than Yellow Submarine <laughs> to defuse the, uh, the controversy. It, it was their time to drop their sympathy for the devil if they'd had it in them. That would have been quite yeah, funny. That would, been, now, that would have been good. Here's our satanic rocker. Um, so the tour goes on. Nothing gets cancelled, but it is not without its um, events. The, in 1966, this is famously the last tour. And the, the, the after effect of the whole bigger than Jesus controversy is that there was some wariness in the Beatles camp, particularly from John and George coming back from the Philippines in those few weeks that touring needs to stop. We need to get off the the treadmill. Whereas Paul is like, no, 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 you know, classic Paul, let's just get on the road and do it. But the, you know, the two and a bit weeks of the the US tour really pushes Paul onto the camp of, yeah, we're done here. There's there's nothing we can really do anymore live. I think the whole tenor of the tour across these couple of weeks changes everybody's mind or convinces people within the band that this this simply cannot go on on the face of it they're doing what they did they're playing a short set you're now getting 30 minutes they're not able to play songs off the new album that's coming out you know they're not going to do eleanor rigby or yellow submarine it's a very sort of old-fashioned set list for 1966 so it's standard set list and it opens with John, Paul and George in sequence singing rock and roll music. She's a woman. If I needed someone, then Day Tripper, Babies in Black. I have no understanding why that song remains in the set list. <laughs> I feel fine. Yesterday, I want to be your man. Nowhere man. Paperback writer. Long haul Sally. Exit. So it's they're just doing what they have always done. A short yep. set as part of a bigger package tour. Um, and they have a press corps with them. Um, and Art Unger was asked to hand over his uh, his um, press card, but he refuses. And Lennon decides to keep him on the tour and has his support. Uh, on the tour is Teen Set editor Judith Sims, representatives from Team Life magazine and Hearst newspapers. Art Unger has said, a group of American DJs, including Jim Stagg and George Klein, and then UK DJs Jerry Layton, Ron O'Quinn, and yeah, Kenny Everett. Everyone loves Kenny Everett. Who is Kenny Everett? People outside the UK won't know who Kenny Everett is, was. Well, I hope you've all got about an hour to kill. Kenny Everett is um, a fascinating figure. He was somebody I loved as a child. So by the time when I was a child, he was running the Kenny Everett video show on, on ITV. And it was something hugely inappropriate that I was allowed to watch because it would come on at about seven o'clock in the evenings and it would show music and videos and this kind of postmodern, ironic, Benny Hill, naked lady kind of thing going on as well. Um, but Kenny Everett was a, you know, he, he first came to fame in the 60s as a radio disc jockey on the pirate radio stations, which were the ships moored in international waters, broadcasting pop music to uh, to an unsuspecting British public before the BBC had its own pop music channel. And he was from Liverpool originally. He was a friend to the Beatles. He would get Beatle exclusives to pay on on, on pirate radio stations. And uh, he eventually, when the BBC created their pop music station, Radio 1, in 1967, he was one of the original disc jockeys. But he had a recurrent kind of thing in his life where he'd get fired by certain people because he was a very unique broadcaster, a very funny man. And he would... He was also kind of a production genius. He had his own home studio and he would make these very ornate musical 
uh, interludes and plays and stories for his radio show. And uh, yeah, a very unique man. And eventually that transferred to, into television at the end of the 70s uh, and then moved over onto the, the BBC. He also produced the Beatles Christmas records in 68 and 69. So he was a real friend. He was a real friend. He was very much on the inside. He was at that party at Kingsley Hill in May 67, uh, the, where Joan and Derek Taylor took acid for the first time. So he's part of that inner circle. We should direct people. Uh, Richard Porter, who runs uh, sort of Beatles Tours, has a website uh, with Beatles Tours in London, has a website, and he has a short but very interesting interview with Kenny Everett there if people want to know more about his sort of interaction with the Beatles. Yeah, he's, um, can I also say that Kenny Everett, his Kenny Everett video show was the first place I ever saw Paul McCartney. I was probably about five years of age and they played the coming up video and I was like, oh, and I didn't see it. (laughs) I remember seeing it as a kid and then about 30 years later, I tracked down the actual episode in the, um, the BFI archive in London and watched it again to see, you know, was my mind playing tricks on me and did I remember it? And it was so strange to watch it after all those years, having seen it as a little child, because there was so much of it that I did remember um, that it's uh, it's great. And there is a good uh, biography out there called Hello Darlings, the authorised biography of Kenny Everett uh, by James Hogg and Robert Sellers that I would thoroughly recommend. And I think the TV show is available on DVD and Blu-ray. The TV show is subsequently, the, the old Thames show, from which ran from about 78 to 81, is all available on DVD. It's almost complete, but they've actually cut out the coming up video. There's lots of fantastic music on it. Pete Townsend, Elvis Costello, David Bowie, you know, unique performances, Kenny Everett video show. But they have cut out um, the Paul stuff, because Paul had a couple of videos shown on the show, and they've cut out the Kate Bush stuff as well. So it's almost complete, but the coming up video is not there. My biggest uh, memory of that show is seeing the Rolling Stones uh, in 1978 playing Respectable. I cannot believe your parents let you as a five-year-old watch that show. (laughs) Unbelievable. It was just so silly. And he he had a fantastic knack, Kenny, of breaking the fourth wall, which as a kid just sort of seemed amazing, where he'd wander off the set and he'd point at cameras and he'd go backstage and cover people in gunge. And it was just so, there's some very, very, and the the Captain Kremen cartoons, which at the time to me were just like cartoons. Now I watch them and I see all the, they're not even double entendres, they're just entendres. <laughs> and uh, I'm like, oh dear, why was I watching yeah. this? But anyway. Uh, it's too late to report your parents to social services so we can move on. Move on. Yeah, we should say Kenny sadly died in 1995 due to complications from HIV AIDS. So that's a, a, a sad loss to the world. But he was an amazing, an amazing person. And he's on the tour. And the tour... It's very short, but it has what you might call a febrile atmosphere, so to speak. The context is not just the Beatles and the apology and all the rest of it. Early August is marked by race riots. You see riots in Atlanta, Chicago. Uh, There was a killing spree in Texas carried out by Charles Whitman, a former U.S. Marine. You can check out the Kinky Friedman song uh, for details about that. Reporting in London for the Village Voice, Richard Goldstein said that revolver was ubiquitous around the city as if Londoners were uniting behind the band in response to bad press emanating from the US. He said there was a genuine anxiety among fans in the UK for the group's safety and quoted one who was a New Yorker saying, if anything happens to them, man, it's World War Three." And Derek Taylor, who was 
in California, writing for Disc and Music Echo, said, America is not too settled at the moment, and I don't think it is any time for the Beatles to be here. Eek. So they start on the 12th of August in Chicago. They do two shows, the International Amphitheatre, 12,000 fans. It is not a sellout, but there are no protests. So, you know, it gets covered as in the local papers to say, you know, fans hail the Beatles in Chicago. Their theology doesn't matter. The Beatles were in town and teenagers were in ecstasy. So business as usual, no? Yes, so they say if any of their Midwest fans were bothered by Lennon's comments, he apparently smoothed things over with a statement that he was sorry he had ever said it and that he merely meant to deplore the decline in religious zeal. So to that extent, it is a good start. You know, there were 12,000 people turn up. There are 13,500 seats. So it's not bad. Not bad at all. Um Next day, August 13th, two shows in Detroit at the Olympia Stadium. There's one protester with a limey go-home placard. But again, it's reported with the headline, Detroit teens give Beatles big welcome. So uh, an estimated 30,000 fans turned up for the two shows. Good business. Good business. Good business. August the 14th, they move on to the Cleveland Municipal Stadium. And this is the first serious crowd disturbance. Um, so there are 30,000 people there. As they start to play Day Tripper, about 2,000 fans break through the security barriers, which sort of separate the audience from the area where there's an elevated stage, and the Beatles have to stop the performance and go and hide backstage for 30 minutes before security is restored. Now, this is not specifically related to uh, the Lennon comments or anything like that. It's just over-exuberant fans. The heart of rock and roll is in Cleveland, apparently, and uh, this this hmm. confirms it. Hello, Cleveland. <laughs> um, hello, Cleveland. It's worth pointing out, by the way, that this tour had been announced in March, so an awful lot has happened since March, and the tickets would have gone on sale in March. So there's people, you know, it's quite late in the day for Bigger Than Jesus to have impacted on ticket sales if they've already been on sale for a couple of months yes. at this point, and people kind of know what the lie of the land is. On, on the 15th of August, they go to Washington, D.C. They play the District of Columbia Stadium about 35,000 fans, and this is the first appearance of the Ku Klux Klan as a support actor. There ain't no party without the Ku Klux Klan. So the Imperial Grand Wizard of the Maryland clan and four of his best buddies picket the uh, stadium and the Beatles held a press conference for about 50 reporters uh, before the show. One reporter suggested that the Beatles were simply using the more popular than Jesus story as a publicity stunt. Lennon not happy with this. He said this is one of the most stupid versions that he had heard saying it's not a publicity stunt. We don't need that publicity. Not like that. Um, the next day, the 16th of August, they're in Philadelphia in John F. Kennedy Stadium. Now, this is quite undersold. It's 20,000 people in apparently a 60,000-seater stadium. And this is the stadium that would go on to see, most famously, um, the definitive version of Led Zeppelin playing Live Aid in 1985 with Phil Collins on drums. So, you know, an important venue. An important venue in, in the history of rock and roll. The uh, <laughs> local press, the Reading Eagle of Reading, PA, used the headline, Philadelphia fans enthusiastic 20,000 cheer the Beatles at the stadium. Beatle John Lennon's remarks about Christianity and his subsequent apology apparently haven't dampened the enthusiasm of the quartet's fans, their cheers indicated last night. 
A sampling of fans, most of whom said they weren't offended, stood up for his right to speak his mind about the popularity of Christianity. The church isn't doing its job. That's what he meant when he said it, said Enony Sevilla, 14, a Philadelphia High School student. If the church was doing its job, rock and roll wouldn't be more popular than religion. I think that... Yeah. Preach, Annalise, or whatever her name is. <laughs> um, I wonder where she is now. If you're, if you're right there, get in touch. <laughs> yes, sign up for ACAST Plus. On the 17th of August, uh, they do two shows in the more sedate surroundings of Toronto. This is the only diversion into uh, Canada on the tour. Um, they play two shows at the Maple Leaf Gardens. And there is a little bit more controversy of a different nature at the at the press conference because John absolutely you know, he loves to talk he does love to talk and he says uh, I support American draft Dodgers escaping to Canada and uh, not to be outdone George weighs in saying thou shalt not kill means that not thou shalt not kill a man section A we all just don't agree with war for any reason whatsoever people have a right not to go into the army so again complete change from where they were in 64 and 65 at these press conferences and what they're prepared to say. They are questioned about Christianity and George said there are lots of things right about Christianity but people don't follow it. The Toronto Star noted that Lennon was in good company in raising the issue of declining interest in Christianity and again referencing back the comments you've made earlier that some ordained clergymen of the English-speaking world have been saying much the same for years. And so as as the tour progresses and, and these public pronouncements come out, they kind of reach a peak at the start of the tour with Brian's 5th of August address and, and John's first address. We're only, you know, we're not even a, a week down the line from them arriving. And they're, it's not that they're backpedaling, but there's kind of a subtext of we don't care. We're kind of, whatever fear John had at the very start of the tour, yeah. it's very quickly rescinded into, oh, for the love of God, you know, <laughs> can we just get on with it? Um, and it's souring their, their whole vibe of touring anyway. I think so. There's, a, there's a, an exasperation with the fact that it isn't going away. But alongside that they, is the fact that they're becoming more belligerent in what they're mm. saying. You know, they're, they're not prepared from the point where Brian is making his apology. John is sort of backstage before his press conference, head in hands. They are becoming more confrontational, both because they just can't believe this is still an issue and because they're railing against the confines of touring and the confines more widely of the image that they, they have. On the 18th of August, they go to Boston. They play Suffolk Downs racetrack and um, there is a an attempt by state representative Charles Ianello who's a democrat uh, to try and uh, revoke the Beatles permit for the show who says um, you know who are these four creeps to put themselves above the high and mighty do they think they will do anything for the morals of our teenagers we've got enough problems but you know they they don't get to suspend the gig and uh, you know there's 25,000 people turning up in Boston to see the band. Most of whom are related to the Kennedy clan. No, no, that's <laughs> not right. Uh, but at the show, 13-year-old Joseph, 15-year-old Kathleen Kennedy, uh, who are the teenage children of Robert and Ethel Kennedy, along with 33 of their other friends and Kennedy family, have all come up from Hyannisport uh, for the show. And according to the Boston Globe, the Kennedy group, as is only right, had a block of seats in the front section 
of the venue. Bless. Um, however, it is the next gig that kind of brings them into the eye of the storm, which is one day later on the 19th of August. They really aren't having any days off, where they're due to do two shows in the mid south Coliseum in Memphis. And this was the date that was mentioned by those wacky DJs originally as the one nearest to them, 19th of August in Memphis. And uh, it's not particularly oversold. They're doing two shows. Uh, the venue would hold 13,000 or so people. Uh, the first show at 4pm only roughly half fills the place with 7,500 people. It's nearly full with 12,500 people for the evening show. Um, so yeah, the, but it's it's this is probably the most fervent opposition on the tour. Yes, so they're moving into the south, into the, the Bible Belt that George has sort of identified where the, as being the point at which or the place at which uh, the controversy is stronger. So the mayor and the city council voted to request the Beatles to cancel both concerts rather than, quote, have municipal facilities be used as a forum to ridicule anyone's religion. So this is a formal request from the city. Ryan sends a very nice telegram back saying, I wish to assure yourself, the people of Memphis and the Mid-South, the Beatles will not, by word, action or otherwise, in any way offend or ridicule the religious beliefs of anyone. Furthermore, John Lennon deeply and sincerely regrets any offence he may have caused. Perfectly worded but statement from Brian. Per- beautifully nice, neat statement from Brian. The, the Ku Klux Klan, though, are outside the venue, and apparently there's a, another crowd of about 8,000 locals doing an anti-Beatles rally elsewhere in Memphis, and the, the KKK nail a Beatles LP to a wooden cross vowing vengeance, and conservative groups stage further public burnings of Beatle records. The KKK, they're such a silly bunch of people, really. It's it seems to be quite the thing. We, we sort of nailing records to cross it suddenly becomes a, a, a hmm. you know I think that would be quite difficult to do, particularly those old shellac <laughs> records. As soon as you hit it with a nail, you think it would just shatter. Well, if they've got those massive big jukebox holes, they're easily going to fall off. You know, maybe a little tiny hole in the middle, a spindle hole. You could you could you could probably do it. Um, apparently, there's a very funny story that as they are flying into Memphis, John Lennon looks out the window of the plane and says. So this is where all the Christians come from. And Paul replies, you're a very controversial person, <laughs> which is quite funny. This is the kind of dialogue from A Hard Day's Night, you know? <laughs> um, and, and similarly, it just goes on. So they land at the airport, they taxi away from the waiting crowds, and uh, they're about to uh, deplane. And George says, send John out first. He's the one they want. <laughs> and Lennon says, you might as well paint a target on me. Uh, so there are 80 policemen um, there. And um, there's, a, you know, Paul says, you know, um, you know, they're in a coach and this little blonde haired kid could have been older than 11 or 12 who barely came up to the window was screaming at me through the plate glass, banging the window with such vehemence. I thought, gosh, I wonder how much he knows about God. He's only a young boy. It can be what he's been fed, but he's been fed that we are Antichrist or something. Uh, this was the face of a zealot. And there was an anonymous phone call before the gig that there was concerns about a bomb scare or that somebody was going to be shot. And this is the show where the firecracker goes off. Yeah, so this is, I mean, it's difficult to comprehend how they were they were actually feeling and how they were going ahead. So they're travelling in a bus crouched on the floor while decoy limousines were sent ahead. Um, during the show, somebody throws a firecracker on stage and Tony Barrow recalls that 
everybody, all of us at the side of the stage, including the three Beatles on stage, looked immediately at John. We would not at that moment have been surprised to see that guy go down. John had half-heartedly joked about the Memphis concert in an earlier press conference. And when we got there, everything seemed to be controlled and calm. But underneath, somehow there was this nasty atmosphere. It is a very tense and pressured kind of day. That incident is actually on YouTube. You can go and look at footage of that concert where the firecracker uh, goes off. And it is just one day. Like, if you look at where they're playing either side of the Memphis show, they're playing Boston and they're playing Cincinnati, and they are not in the Bible Belt. They are not down south. You know, they'd be very sort of forgiving places. Um, Mm. So it's really just this one 24-hour session where they dip down into Memphis, where they're faced with the wrath of it. And it's, it's probably worth keeping that in mind that, you know, we are talking about this so many years later, but it's really only one date on a tour that all of this revolves around. And it's this notion of, you know, the media frenzy and, you know, when stuff becomes, you know, a media sensation, who really cares? You know, sometimes these stories are amplified, but the core people who care about it is not as big a number as you're led to believe. I think this is the point that comes out of all of this, that it's the media running with the story and um, ramping it up. This idea that there's all of this controversy. You know, we've seen before one protester, Limey, go home, etc. It really is Memphis is where it peaks or where they expected it to peak or where their nervousness peaks. But even in Memphis, there isn't really too much uh, of an issue when it actually comes to it. So the next day, they're due to play Cincinnati. Um, but that is cancelled because of a rainstorm. So it's pushed back to the afternoon of the 21st. So they're playing two shows on the 21st in two different cities. So the postponed show in Cincinnati is played across the field at noon. And George talks about this and says, we had to get up early, get on, play the concert at midday, then take all the gear apart, go to the airport, fly to St. Louis, set up, play the gig originally planned for that day. All we had were three amps, three guitars and a set of drums. Imagine trying to do it now. But again, two shows, two different cities, same day. Matt. It is quite crazy, yes. So Cincinnati was to have been the 20th and St. Louis on on the 21st. And instead they say, yeah, well, we can't do Cincinnati on the 20th. Instead of pushing it to the end of the tour, they're saying, no, we'll just do two shows in a day. Imagine if you had your ticket and you had to be there at midday. It's not really the most rock and roll time um, for a gig in Cincinnati. And then St. Louis is only about um, 350 miles away from Cincinnati. So it's not the the largest jump on the on the tour. That's 560 kilometers if you're in Europe. Um but they go from Crossley Field in Cincinnati at noon to play Bush Memorial Stadium uh, in the same evening. It's still raining. It's still not great weather and it's around about this time that finally the shoe drops with a certain Paul Macca McCartney that this isn't any way for grown men to tour. This seems to be where Paul had his epiphany about touring. So he talks about this in Anthology and he says it rained quite heavily and they put bits of corrugated iron over the stage so it felt like the worst little gig we'd ever played at. Even before we started as a band, we were having to worry about the rain, getting in the amps, and this took us right back to the cavern days. It was worse than those early days and I don't even think the house was full. After the gig, I remember us getting in a big, empty, steel-lined wagon like a removal van. There was no furniture in there, nothing. We were sliding around trying 
to hold on to something. At that moment, everyone said, oh, this bloody touring, I've had it up to here, man. I finally agreed. I'd been trying to say, ah, touring's good. It keeps us sharp. We need touring and musicians need to play. Keep music alive. I had held on to that attitude when there were doubts, but finally I agreed with them. George and John were the ones most against touring. They got particularly fed up. So we agreed to say nothing, but never to tour again. We thought we'd get into recording, but now even America was beginning to pall because of the conditions of touring and because we'd done it so many times. So Paul is beginning to feel this way. We're into the very last handful of shows. Um, The next show is in New York City on the 23rd of August, that day of days, the 23rd of August, the most important of Beatle dates. (laughs) And they're back in New York City. They're back in Shea Stadium. We've talked about this on our 23rd of August episode. Um, You know, it's their second time playing Shea Stadium. Not that from the anthology, the Beatles can even remember playing it twice in some instances. Um, But Whereas it had been full with 56,000 fans in 1965, in 1966, there's 11,000 unsold seats with only 45,000 people there. So it's not, you know, there is a bit of a wobble. Bit of a wobble. They make still make more money from this appearance um, because of the, the deal. But a couple of things happen here. There's the ticket sales, but two fans at their hotel climb out onto a ledge, Twenty two stories up threatening to jump off if they didn't get to the band to meet John and Paul so that's an incident that Ringo will refer back to but the police talk them down after 20 minutes but again it's another aspect of the mania that surrounds them there is only one question about Jesus at the press conference that they John effectively ignores so by you know the back end of the tour that is receding He again criticises US participation in the war and all four of them say the war is wrong. So they're they're being more belligerent and there is almost an argument between the band and the press corps. It starts to become very fractious at that point. Yeah, and that's a thread you see across these 66 press conferences. They are very different to two and a half years earlier when they're charming everyone and they're charming themselves. You can see the, you can see them even just within the, the press conference of this of this tour, that they are, they're kind of done. And um, that's the 23rd of August. Um, the 25th of August, they're off to the other side of the country for two shows in Seattle at the Seattle Centre Coliseum. And once again, another bloody press conference. You'd think they'd give them a break. You would think they would give them a break. But there's a gospel singer called Fag. Is that how you pronounce that? Fag Springman has said has said that the Beatles were attempting to profit from a religious figure whom they despised. And this really gets their back up. So John says, now that's not very Christian. Paul says, well, he couldn't have been listening. And George says, he needs his mind straightened. Ringo just sits there smiling. But you can see that they're much more bullish. There's no sign of the contrition that they had when they began the tour in Chicago. Uh, There are some People turn up to picket, carrying signs, Christ first, Beatles last. And teenagers who support the Beatles continue to crucify Christ. It seems harsh. Hmm. That's a bit unfair. Um, but, you know, once again, the ratio of people outside versus people inside is a, a very yeah. one-sided ratio, you know. And Yellow Submarine is being played on more radio stations and climbing up the charts. Um, two more gigs to go. The 28th of August in Los Angeles. And having 
played uh, the Hollywood Bowl uh, on their previous attendances, they are now in Dodger Stadium. And we often we often think of Shea Stadium when we think of the Beatles. We don't think of Dodger Stadium when we think of the Beatles, but they were playing it years before Elton John played it. Yes, they invented stadium touring and hmm. being quoted out of context. Uh, yeah, there's another press conference. When are they going to stop? And uh, they're asked if the controversy uh, had hurt or helped their careers. And Paul says, it hasn't helped or hindered it, I don't think. I think most sensible people took it for what it was. And it was only the bigots that took it up. So there's that belligerence coming back. They get some gold records at Capital later in the day. And the crowd is about 45,000 fans. But there's another kind of fan breakthrough, isn't there? Yeah, so 7,000 break through fencing and stop the band from leaving. And they're stuck for two hours, uh, trapped in a dressing room until they sort of try and use decoy vehicles, etc. And uh, then, then they manage to escape and fans are injured. Some are arrested in clashes with the police. So again, the, the problem is a lack of security. It's not the religious fervor, it's not the John's comment, it's just the fans becoming increasingly unruly. The promoter there was Bob Eubanks, and he hmm. said, uh, you know, he thought the band were much more jaded in 66 than in 64 and 65. He said it was much different because the band was different. I believe they were tired of it all, they were different people in 66. And that's uh, Bob Eubanks, the uh, host of the Newlywed Game, you know, famous game show host. Um, which leads us to the final Beatles live show, and we could probably spend an entire hour talking about Candlestick Park. Um, but that is what happens on the 29th of August, the last show. They play to an audience of 25,000, but there's 7,000 unsold tickets. And because the Beatles had prearranged their, their fee, uh, it's, it's not a money-making gig. Uh, unless you're the Beatles. Unless you're the Beatles. So they get 50,000 uh, performance fee and uh, the concert results in a loss for the promoter. And if you're following the dates, that is the 29th of July is when Datebook hits the newsstands. The 29th of August is when the Beatles finish their tour. This is a one-month thing that goes from being a massive controversy to being something that's forgotten about, to something that's swept aside once a new single comes out, that the Beatles go from apologising for to not apologising anymore for. Again, another demonstration that in Beatle time, an awful lot can happen in one month, but it's all just one month. And we have to ask ourselves the question, Stephen, are the Beatles more popular than Jesus? Yes, or at least they were. (laughs) Or at least they were for about a week in 2009, and I have the evidence to prove it. Go on. In September 2009, The Guardian published a graph comparing Google's search traffic for the terms Jesus and Beatles over the previous 30 days, which showed that there were more searches for the Beatles between the 9th and 16th of September 2009 than for Jesus over the same period. So I rest my case. Yes, that is the uh, week in 2009 when the remasters came out and Beatles Rock Band. So, you know, um, maybe maybe the the Bible should be remastered. I don't know. Am I going to get in trouble for saying that? They need to remaster the Bible, I think. (laughs) Please, please don't, please don't, you know, throw a firecracker at me. It's it's really interesting because, you know, as I said at the start, the Beatles kind of set down this template for for fame and 
you know, now when something goes off the rails, it is a bit of a, oh, it's your bigger than Jesus moment, you know, um, uh, and, and how people deal with that. Um, so, you know, what have we what have we learned? What have we learned? What have we learned? Well, I think you've, you've, <laughs> you've sort of touched on this when you were talking about the initial sort of spontaneous ban in response to the comment, and then it's picked up. It all, you know, transpires over the space of a month, and it's the media. So it's the start of Checks Notes Fake News. Don't bring that phrase into the podcast. God okay. Damn it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it is, the, it is the start of the, the trial by media and the media leading yeah. the story, I guess. There's a version of that going on there. Yeah, that's really what I'm trying to say. The, pub, the actual public outcry, very small minority. It was initially a publicity stunt. Comments made no impact when previously published, either in the UK or in the States, in the New York Times. That, no response to that at all. There's almost a sort of perfect storm. We're three years into Beatlemania. It follows the problems in Manila. The butcher cover coincides with their own feeling within the band that they have to push back against that mop-top image. And there's a sort of manufactured outrage in a minority, but the, the media fan the flames. And, you know, I guess money trumps everything. There's a, a final quote from Ted Atkins of KIMN radio station in Denver, um, who at the end of August 66 reports to Billboard saying, you know, for a program director to say, I'm not going to play the Beatles is tantamount to committing rating suicide. When the story first broke, he said, we conducted a two hour poll using a radio show and found 900 listeners were for the Beatles, while only 200 were against playing the Beatles records. We had a couple of heated comments, but nothing serious. Um, But it does all fold into the fact that this is the end of the Beatles touring days. You know, Ringo even decides to hang up his sticks, if you can hang up sticks. Yes, so he says, uh, 24 hours a day without a break, press, people fighting to get into your hotel room, climbing 25 stories up drain pipes. If it had carried on, I would have gone insane. So I think you know when Ringo doesn't want to play anymore, you know it's over. Um, And it still has after effects. It's nice to know that in 2018, uh, that uh, great newspaper we mentioned earlier on, L'Osservatore Romano, (laughs) the official Vatican uh, daily newspaper, um, when uh, they were writing about the White Album, uh, decided that they were going to issue a pardon, dismissing his comments as showing off, bragging by a young English working class musician who had grown up in the age of Elvis Presley and rock and roll and had enjoyed unexpected success and appraised the Beatles for their unique and strange alchemy of sounds and words and that the White Album remains a magical music anthology. That's nice that the Vatican's on board with uh, Revolution 9. That's lovely. I would cannot imagine how George would feel about now being officially sanctioned by the Vatican. But uh, lovely, lovely. Uh, any other last words? Well, if we look at the whole Jesus thing, you know, John had clarified the remarks in December '66, sort of saying, "I believe what Jesus actually said. The basic things he laid down about love and goodness, and not what people." say he said, so it's still that Passover thing. But the most interesting comment that I found uh, was something that John had written in 1978. And Yoko published a book, sort of fairly slim volume, I have to say, called Skywriting by Word of Mouth in 1986. And it includes the following paragraph. 
I always remember to thank Jesus for the end of my touring days. If I hadn't said the Beatles were, quote, bigger than Jesus, unquote, and upset the very Christian Ku Klux Klan, well, Lord, I might still be up there with all the other performing fleas. God bless America. Thank you, Jesus. Ah, but the age-old question is, what do you think, everybody? Um, The bigger than Jesus controversy, was it a real controversy? at all. You know, was it a small minority making making waves and um, get in touch in all the usual places? Uh, the website, www.nothingisrealpod.com um, over the Nothing Is Real Facebook group, the X stream. Um, Stephen's also on X. I'm on Mastodon. There's Instagram and we have our Nothing Is Real email, nothingisrealpod at outlook.com. And um, yeah, we'll we'll reply to everything personally. No, we won't. Um, but, you know, uh, there's a mailing list if you want to stay in touch with us that's available on nothingisrealpod.com and also all the extra episodes on Acast. Thank you for the Acast supporters. Um, but for now, my name is Jason Carty. My name is Stephen Cockcroft. And this has been Nothing Is Real. Thanks for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Thanks for listening to Nothing Is Real. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, why not become a member? You'll get access to ad-free content, bonus episodes, and so much more. Follow the link in the show notes, sign up on ACAST Plus, or visit our website, nothingisrealpod.com.